outline things done for you, uh, hopefully tomorrow or this weekend, so you can have them in time to write your article. Um, for the most part, when I just glanced through it, it they were all fine, so you can already just commence writing. Does that mean? Um, I don't want to hold you up. And even even if you do commence writing, I make ask you to make a change. It probably won't change what you write. It'll probably just change how you order it or something like that. Or you might have to write something extra, but I might not ask you to take something out. So you're not really going to waste time if you start to write already. Keep in mind that the due date for this is November 19th. I won't be here that day. I'll actually be across the country uh, giving a paper at ETS. So. Um, yeah, we'll see how that goes. Uh, but you should still be here because the idea is if um, you have a wiki topic particularly, you bring it in hard copy and then you switch with somebody else. And they read what you wrote and you read what they wrote and you kind of say, hey, this didn't make sense or here's a typo, things like that. And then you you write your name, don't sign it, write your name down so I can read it or the secretary can read it to check off that the article was peer reviewed and then I'll read both comments and articles and then give you some edits for a final draft. Does that make sense? Uh-huh. Is it just articles or? <coughs> just articles, that's all I'm looking for, for this. Paper, the blessed thing about it is it's due at the end. The curse, that's, that's to compensate for the fact that you have to write a ton, a lot more and with a lot more comprehen comprehensive nature than like a simple, a little more simple report. Because that's what these articles are, right? They're not a bunch of analysis. They're, you're just giving people information. Does that make sense? You're presenting views and things of that nature. So, you know, there's pros and cons to both sides and uh, papers are in one sense harder than wiki projects in that regard. but. Wiki projects, because they're easier, I have to make sure that you actually do the work. And not only that, but wiki projects are put on the internet for everyone to see. So, you know, you don't want junk up there. All right. Any case, today we're going to cover 2 Samuel some more and cover kind of the flip side, or actually the, not the flip side, the proof of what has been discussed before last class. And I'll give you some comments about it, hope to tie in some loose ends and how all this fits into the big picture as well. So let's begin with a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you because you are great and we are not. And you are the one who carries us through. You are the one whose grace is sufficient for our weakness. You are the one um, whose power is displayed through us in spite of ourselves. You are the one who moves redemptive history forward. You don't need us. You alone are the center of it all. And so conform, transform, move our hearts, shepherd our hearts to really, once again, realize that you are the center. Uh, you are the one whom we live for and die for, and your glory is all that matters. Not our own personal fame, not our own personal agendas, but Lord, you and your majesty alone is all that matters. And our faithfulness to that calling is what we are held accountable for. So remind us of these things, O oh God, especially as um, we are here at the college and doing all these different exciting things and, 
and they sometimes reflect who we are and our own abilities, but Lord, may, it, may we echo what the psalmist says, not to us, not to us, but to you be the glory. Um, help us to see how this is even evident in David's life, and when he didn't do it, the catastrophic effects that occurred, but uh, when he did, how blessed he was. So conform us, once again, to honor the king that you have so vividly established, introduced, and informed us about in your word. And help us to see these dark times so that we would further honor the one who, by contrast, is so brilliant, your son, Jesus Christ. Make that our heart now. Make that our soul now. In your name we pray. Amen. Uh, at the end of last class, um, someone, someone asked, I think it might have been Kyle, asked how does all of what we just talked about fit into the big picture and fit particularly with Christ? I think that's a very important um, emphasis because, like I've said before, 2 Samuel is a hub text. Well, I don't think I've said that in a while, but you guys should remember that. 2 Samuel is a hub text. What do we mean by this? We mean that 2 Samuel is a foundational piece of revelation that uh, from which comes a perspective of the rest of history and what God's plan is such that when things are fulfilled, they all, in one sense or another, trace back to Second Samuel. I kind of gave you the example of sympathetic resonance. When you, know, you play violin, you hear like the piano or the microwave or whatever resonate with you. Well, that's the idea. There are things that will cause Second Samuel to resonate because of the nature of the Davidic covenant. God has established the Davidic dynasty. We know that. And now it's all predicated upon the right person. And when we get to the Davidic covenant proper, we realize that all previous promises concerning the world, concerning Israel, and you know, Abrahamic covenant, Mosaic covenant, all these covenants are now rolled in to the Davidic covenant, and particularly the Davidic king. You know that. I've kind of emphasized this over and over and over again. But because of David's failure, we have a problem. Just as <clears throat> the Davidic king's actions just don't affect himself, they affect the entire dynasty because it's all predicated by corporate solidarity into one person. One person kind of defines everything. Um, there are imp there's impacts because of the Bathsheba incident on David personally, as well as the dynasty. As well as on the dynasty. Okay, you we've kind of already said what has been going on in the dynasty. And actually, one leads to the other. You know that. Davidic king, right person, can fulfill the covenant. But here's the issue with the dynasty. Twofold. One, the sword 
will never leave. Never means never. Ad olam, until the age to come, so to speak. The sword will never leave the dynasty. At this point, because of what David has done, it has set the Davidic dynasty into the trajectory of absolute insecurity. And not only that, but God will raise up uh, one who one of David's own familiarity, uh, it, literally it's his friend, it's his neighbor, to sleep with his wives in public. Everyone remember this? What David did in private now will be done in public, but you cannot miss the connection that God said, I gave you whose wives? Everyone remember? Saul's. Saul's wives. And that was a symbol that David now had succession and he had supremacy over the entire nation of Israel. He had supremacy even over the house of Saul. And what happens now is if somebody else sleeps with your wives, well that communicates to the entire nation in that culture and in that time is that somebody else succeeded you. Does that make sense? I'll give you the same embarrassment that, or the same shame, let's, let's be clear here, that you did to somebody else, but that shame has massive effects on your dynasty. Namely, there will be instability for your dynasty. There's always going to be this rivalry. Your, your kingdom is not solid anymore. People will try to take it over. Uh, I'll humiliate you in that way. And this begins a complete downward spiral. David is kind of the first domino. Um, and this one, the first one, the sword particularly, is going to haunt the Davidic dynasty. This begins a pattern of history. Right? More on the personal thing in a little bit. Here's how it kind of works. From this point forward, in essence, you always have the Davidic kingdom on a downward slope. You do. It's, there's no, that's how you should read the book of Kings, particularly. Not necessarily Chronicles, but Kings. Um, because the lens of the the lens on the book of Kings is a combination of Deuteronomy, no surprise there, right? And as well as through the specific filter of 2 Samuel. And the Davidic kingdom is always in a downward spiral. Yeah, okay, you have David, and he's pretty high up, and Solomon, I mean, there were a lot of good highlights in Solomon's reign, but just like with sanctification, you know, how the common adage is, you're always getting better, I mean, you're always hopefully becoming more like the Lord Jesus Christ, make your, uh, make your progress evident to all, all these kinds of things, <coughs> be a model, you know. And while, yes, you sin, but the overall slope of your life should be upward. Everyone remember that kind of analogy when we talk about it in theology? Well, you know, the Lord Jesus is, he who begun a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus. Uh, this is the opposite. Right? While well, sanctification, the Lord is continually to transform your life, and that's an evidence that he will ultimately transform it at glorification. Here, there are high points, but they just always seem to die. You know, it's like Solomon has a wonderful kingdom only to have it what? 
What happens at the end of, like, the, okay, right after Solomon stops reigning? The kingdom is split, and you don't recover from that, right? It's like, oh, what a high low point, you know? And so everything always goes down in the Davidic house. Yeah, people do put on the brakes. Yes, there is the display of God's faithfulness. I'll talk about that. That actually goes right along here, but we will, I will talk about that in a little bit. But the general direction of the Davidic house is downwards. Why? Because of what happened in 2 Samuel 10 and 11. That uh, has, that event, according to God's commentary, the true king's commentary, per the terms and conditions, or maybe not terms and conditions, but the promises and the decrees of the Davidic covenant, it's all downhill. Does that make sense to everybody? That's the way the rest of history works. Every Davidic king will follow their father. Therefore, every Davidic king will bring down the dynasty lower and lower and lower and lower. This is the way it will work. This is the lens on the rest of history. The Davidic dynasty is, was supposed to reverse everything. Remember, the Davidic covenant was supposed to be the one who fulfills it, was supposed to fulfill all of the promises that Israel was to receive and thereby also for the world but it will not be able to complete that task. It is on a downward slope. Somewhere like around here, but it's going to project here, you have two prophets, Isaiah and Micah. Isaiah and Micah. And Isaiah predicts, Isaiah predicts in Isaiah 7, the famous virgin birth prophecy, that, I mean, it's wonderful. I mean, we can get a warm, fuzzy feeling about that for Christmas. And, and praise the Lord. I mean, I like warm, fuzzy feelings, and I like Christmas. But, um, but Isaiah 7.14 is not just about Christmas, even though it is. Isaiah 7.14 predicts... Well, okay, let's just go there. Because you need to see this firsthand. Go turn to Isaiah, and let's... Let's put this in its proper perspective. By the way, I think a lot of people misinterpret Isaiah 7 because they're not, they're not thinking Davidic covenant. They're not thinking 2 Samuel when they read this. They're just thinking, I don't know what they're thinking. Well, I do know what they're thinking. They're thinking, oh, well, we got a, problem, a historical problem. But you're not seeing it in this line that God is destroying the Davidic dynasty as he promised in 2 Samuel. Yes, Nathan came to inaugurate the Davidic covenant, but Nathan comes back to tell you it's over. And everyone is aware of this fact, and they're just watching this thing deteriorate, and everyone knows the Davidic covenant is the one covenant to what? Rule them all. So if this thing fails, we all fail. So this thing can't fail. Does that make sense to everybody? And so, they missed this subtle illusion. Yeah, Ahaz and Isaiah are having this conversation. Ahaz is a terrible, 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 terrible king. And that's an understatement. Verse 13, read it. Then he said, Listen now, ye, O house of David. Stop right there. What's... If you're talking to Ahaz, what's weird about that statement? Anyone know? Yeah. What would you expect to say? 
uh, listen up, Ahaz, right? First, you wouldn't put the imperative in the plural. That doesn't make any sense because you're talking to one guy, not many. Second, <coughs> you would say Ahaz, not house of David. Don't be silly. Ahaz is not a house, and he's certainly not the house of David. He's part of it. Ahaz is kind of like the, the straw that broke the camel's back. Does that make sense? But he ain't a straw. He's the anvil that smashed the bus. You know, it's like our, the, the crazy man who drove it off the cliff or something, you know, like in, in Looney Tunes, you know. That's this guy. Ahaz is terrible. Yeah, very, I mean, just like an apostate kind of terrible. Anyway, um, and here's what, I, here's what Isaiah says. Everyone's wondering, from a Second Samuel perspective, we're all going down, right? So, what's going to happen to the house of David? And here's what God says. Continue reading. It is too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men, that you will try the patience of my God as well. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin. Continue. And bear a son, and she will call his name. Amen. Continue. He will eat curds and honey at the time. He knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. For before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. Continue. The Lord will bring on your people, bring on you and your people and your father's house such days as have never come since the day that Ephraim separated from Judah the king of Syria. Okay. Um, here is what happens in Isaiah 7, 14. Ahaz, everyone's worried. The Davidic kingdom, the Davidic dynasty, which is the hinge of the linchpin of all redemptive promises ever given, they all are in that basket. What's going to happen? Because Ahaz is crazy, and he's bringing this thing down. And Isaiah says in Isaiah 7.14, I'll give you a sign, but it's not one about your security. Yes, there will be a unique child born, born of a virgin, but he will eat what? Curds and honey. What you will find out later in this chapter is that curds and honey is a symbol of exile. It's a symbol of exile. Okay? Curds and honey is not like the rich man's diet. Okay? Curds and honey is because that's all you can find because that's what the land naturally produces. You go, go milk a cow that's wandering in the field. You get some honey that uh, either the bees have produced. Some people were really skeptical. They thought it was date honey, which could have been as well. But they just, they found in like the last seven years a huge repository of beehives in Galilee. And so maybe, maybe it's bees. But it doesn't matter. Whether it's bees or dates, and I don't think you really care that much, it's natural. It comes from the land. Do you have to be a beekeeper to find bees to get honey? No. And dates can just grow in the wild and you can just pick them off the tree and kind of pound them into honey to eat. Does that make sense to everybody? You don't need to farm it like you would farm wheat or barley. 
That's the food of exile because you're foraging for food. There's no stability in the land such that you can actually become a normal farmer and rely on the seasons and your farm to provide for you. You've just got to hunt for food. <clears throat> That's the condition the Messiah will be born into, the condition of exile. If you remember our discussion about... Did we discuss? Well, maybe we discussed this. I don't remember. Micah. Remember what happens in Micah. The glory of Israel returns to... If you're a minor prophet, you know this at least. I know that for sure. Returns to... Starts with an A, rhymes with Olam. Adullam. <laughs> Did I not talk about this in this class? No? Okay. That's okay. See, I didn't talk about it. How can I expect you to know it? So, uh, in Micah 1, God says, here's what's going to happen to Israel. Here's what's going to happen. Here's what the exile means. The glory of Israel, which is what? The Davidic house is going to return to Adullam. What's Adullam? Anyone know? Cave. Cave where David first began his dynasty. I mean, that's kind of an overstatement, but it's where he first started the whole running away from Saul business and first started acting remotely like a king. Does that make sense to everybody? And what is God saying? We're starting all over again. The exile will force not only the nation of Israel, but who is the nation connected with? We cannot forget this. The Davidic king with the Davidic covenant will force them back to square one or square zero. I, don't, I mean, whatever we want to call it. <coughs> Start over again. It's over. What David did will set not only Israel, but more specifically, the Davidic dynasty on a long track to nothing, to total humiliation, and they will have to start over again. Does that make sense to everybody? That's what's going to have to happen. That's what it means the sword will never leave your house. Is that true? Yeah, because that's what plagues them all the way, starting from David, all the way till it ends in the exile. The Davidic dynasty is over. You do remember this. Tell it not in Gath. Where was that said? In what book? Okay, good, Micah. But what other book? Second Samuel. Good, yeah. I'm glad you guys remember that. Huh? The book of Jasher. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I mean, well, he's writing the wiki on that, so of course he should know. I mean, I, I'm happy he does know that. So, wait, what? Oh, no, which one is the question? No, never mind. That was my that was my wiki assignment. So there was like four of them. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, never mind. I get, I get you. Okay, good. So, I was like, which which book of Jasher? I'm like, well, there's really only one, you know. But <laughs> it's not like Jasher one, Jasher two, Jasher three, first Jasher, you know, or something. Okay. Um, but the tell it not in Gath is said both in 2 Samuel and then in what? Micah. In 2 Samuel, it's saying what? The king, King Saul and his dynasty is what? Over. In Micah 1, where the glory of Israel returns to Adullam, it's talking about who? David. And his dynasty is over. It ended. He, when did... 
He, be, he injected death and poison into it from the very beginning, and now it's going to die. Yes? Yes, and that's the whole tension, is it not? Well, this is where it gets complicated. That's why I want to show you how this works. How do, how do you reconcile, and what we will talk about today is God sets up for this tremendous tension. Tremendous tension. He's going to kill the dynasty, but somehow the dynasty has to live even within the Davidic covenant, right? Because God says to David, this thing's not going to end, right? So he's got to keep that promise somehow, yet kill them. You've got to die, but you've got to live. Interesting. So, what happens in Isaiah 7.14 and Micah begin to answer this question. When the dynasty is over, there will be one to resurrect the dynasty. Does that make sense? This unique child, he's born in exile. He's born in absolute impoverished conditions. He's not born like a, like a king would be born. He's born humble, just like who was? His name starts with a D. David was. Why? Because he's going to start it all over again. That's the sign that it's secure. When it looks like it's all over, you have one seed. You have one child born to start it all over again. Does that make sense to everybody? That's what transforms the exile. Okay? That's what Isaiah 7.14 and Micah are projecting. There will be a Messiah. He will be born where? In Bethlehem. And it's like, okay, Iowa? No. That's like a little kid's Sunday school answer. If you're living in Iowa. Okay, the, you know, live, he bo- born in Bethlehem. This is not a trick question. Why? As I've said before, because he's the new David. We start over. Yes, the dynasty comes to a complete halt. It's all, it looks like it's demolished. And God says, from the ashes of the Davidic dynasty, one will come to pull it all back together again. God is serious. The fault of David has set the entire path of the history of the Davidic dynasty on a downward trajectory leading inevitably to destruction. But God still, somehow, through his faithfulness, will preserve the Davidic dynasty such that there will be one born of a virgin, who will be the new David to transform the entire dynasty around. Are you with me on this? Okay. This element of faithfulness will be introduced in today's lecture. So far, we've got the bad stuff, right? Sword will never, you know, sword's never going to leave your house. Somebody else is going to sleep with your wives. And in fact, you should die, but you're not going to die. Who's going to die? Your son. Yeah. Not a very positive message, right? Only a hint of God's grace in there, that David doesn't die, right? But there's still the balance of judgment. Today, in our, when we get there, if we get there, you will learn, no, there will be a tremendous amount of faithfulness. Okay? And that's going to create a tension. The Davidic dynasty must die, but God still has to preserve it. Do you see the tension there? That's what the book of Kings shows you. Shows you that the capital kanji is set and bent on destroying the Davidic dynasty while yet at the same time maintaining it. That is going to force 
and facilitate the seed of Isaiah 7.14, Micah 1, and yea, verily, Genesis 3.15, if you connect all the dots all the way back, to come out. All right? Now, there's something else that has to be said here. A couple things. If you zoomed in on the interactions of this Messiah who will reverse everything around, so this is kind of like zoomed-in picture, okay? Here's what you would see, right? And this is important for the life of Christ. This is important for the life of Christ. And, I mean, okay, look, there's like connections that are coming through here. But now do you start to understand passages like Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53? Psalm 22 says, yes, the Davidic king will suffer. That's what has to happen. He has to suffer for sins. Because why? David has sinned and set the Davidic dynasty on a downward spiral. Does that make sense to everybody? So of course there's going to be suffering. God is going to have to beat up the Davidic king a lot. That's per the terms of the Davidic covenant. Make sense to everybody? But if someone suffers the entire chastisement of the curse of the Davidic covenant, he will fulfill that element and be able to, according to David, fulfill the rest of the Davidic covenant. Does that make sense to everybody? The Davidic covenant is not just about beating David up, right? That's just one promise. But what are the other promises? I'll give you rest from your enemies, right? I'll give you a kingdom. Everyone remember this. The one who can bear the full punishment and finish that element of the Davidic covenant off, he gets the rest of the pie as well. It's winner take all. It's just that to win this game, you've got to take all the suffering first. Does that make sense to everybody? Do you see that paradigm? Yes? So Jesus' suffering has to do with the sword never leaving the house of David? Correct. In part. Right? Obviously, it's for your sin, too. Yeah. But it's not just for your sin. It's also in reference to the sin of who? The Davidic kings. This is the suffering to end it all. In Isaiah 53, the exact idea is repeated. He takes the sin for Israel and the world and the entire house of David. All right, I'll put DD, Davidic dynasty. Okay? On the suffering servant. By the way, this is really clear because Isaiah 53 is in the same book as what? Isaiah 7, 14, right? They're like all, all written by Isaiah, unless you shouldn't be at the school. And, um, and, uh, and the point here is this. The one who takes the suffering, 100% of the Davidic covenant, of the suffering and chastisement that God gives. And Isaiah 53 emphasizes the suffering servant did no wrong. It was completely substitutionary in the most perfect sense. The one who atones for that kind of sin and therefore makes that kind of a means and therefore removes that kind of curse, he now can restore the Davidic dynasty or himself into blessing, which then restores what? Israel into blessing, which then restores what? The world into blessing. Does this make sense to everybody? 
That's why the cross is so important. It resolves not only your sin, that's very important, that's the linchpin, but it resolves the sins of other entities and takes the judicial curse for other entities in still soteriological categories that has massive effects. Like now, the Davidic covenant can be fulfilled. Does that make sense to everybody? That's how he reverses exile into triumph. All right? This is already, if you were in Minor Prophets, you know this. This is why at the end of, book of, at the, end of the book of Micah, what is the statement? What is it? Okay, okay, no, go up a little bit. <laughs> All right. uh, how many verses are we talking about? Go to the word who. Who is a God like you? Okay, stop right there. Who is a God like you? What is that phrase? Minor prophet students, you know this. What is the Hebrew wording there? My ka. Mi el cha. Are Miel Chamocha, Micah. Micah's name, he plays off himself, off his own name. Who is a God like you, Micah? That's what Micah means. Who is like you? That's that's very important because that's the nature of who God is and what specifically about this God. Continue reading. Who pardons iniquity? passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession. He does not retain his anger forever, because he delights in unchanging love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities on the foot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. You will give truth to Jacob and unchanging love to Abraham. Stop right there. Forgiveness of sins is the linchpin to make the reversal happen. But does this now start to make sense? David sinned. Other people have sinned. That has consequences. That ultimately means that there has to be a curse of the law placed upon the Davidic dynasty. That's even reiterated in the Davidic covenant. Does that make sense? And here is Jesus, and he bears the curse for the nation of Israel, which actually, and the world, who, which actually includes who? The Davidic dynasty, for our, for our intents and purposes. And that removes it all, such that now the blessings of the Davidic covenant can now be in place. Does that make sense to everybody? He ends, he puts an end to the curse of the law. All of the old is ended at his death, and the resurrection means what? Everything can be made new. It's the end of the old with his death, but the beginning of the new with his life. For that very reason, post-resurrection, Jesus says what? All authority has been in Matthew, what? Given to me. I'm now the real king.
king. I bought that kingdom. I put an end to the curses of the Davidic covenant, yea, verily, as they're piggybacked onto the Deuteronomic covenant, Deuteronomy, and I put an end to all that so that the blessings can now come. The dynasty has been reversed. Does that make sense? That's why we're saved. Um, because he took that punishment for us, and there are great effects, just even beyond our own salvation, that now come about because of this. Does this make sense to everybody? This is what's going on. Second Samuel, and don't forget to tie back, Second Samuel begins the downward trajectory. It's going to have a kind of a tension with God's faithfulness to David, as we will see today too, which is going to make an exile happen, but yet even in exile, even when the Davidic dynasty is totally in ruins, God will raise up the fallen tent of David, Amos 9. How? Because there will be one who bears the sins of the world, and he will save his people from their sins, including the, his own dynasty, so as to facilitate that blessing to come in. Do you see how that works? Does this make sense to everybody? <clears throat> Do you also understand um, like how that adds? It doesn't change what we know about the gospel, but it certainly augments the good news. Does that make sense? The, the core elements of forgiveness of sins, justification, amen, they don't change. They're still there, but the results the impact are a lot greater. Does that make sense to everybody? Uh, be very careful. Right now, I'm, I'm dealing with this whole sticky issue of uh, <coughs> justification. That's the nature, New Pauline perspective, N.T. Wright, and giving this paper on it. And, you know, just because there's all these big picture issues that are happening doesn't necessarily change the small things that are going on. Does that make sense? The small things are what make the big things work. Forgiveness of sins and justification is a linchpin to make the entire mechanism of, of the Davidic covenant and reversing the Deuteronomic curses function correctly. Does that make sense to everybody? Just because your car engine is a big, complicated thing doesn't change the role of what a spark plug does. Right? Spark plug is not the same thing as a steering wheel just because both drive your car. You know? They still have their unique functions, and we have to keep those in tension. Everyone with me on this? Does this make sense? Second Samuel begins the downward spiral and, and it amplifies why this tragedy happened. Right? Just such a just such a quote unquote small thing like David, right? David does one thing wrong, but it's catastrophic. But it amplifies why you need Jesus, because the Davidic kingdom is on a downward spiral. Micah and Isaiah both testify only Yahweh can intervene to save this thing, to save the ship. And that's what you need. You need him to save this. Otherwise, it's still going to fall to pieces. Does this make sense? Very good. Very good. Keep that in mind, right? So often we want to be the hero, but you're not. Not even David was. When he tried to be, he became the biggest loser. And the loss was tremendous. Only Jesus can redeem. Okay. <clears throat> this is what Nathan predicted. And you know it's going to happen because it already did. See, it's very, sometimes it's very cheesy. But 
David isn't totally sure. So Nathan, in chapter 12, <clears throat> verse 15, he goes back to his what? House. Significant word there? What's a significant word? It ain't Nathan, and it ain't going. No, I just said it's not going. Are you just playing with me? Or are you just actually, or you don't know the answer? No. I mean, that's very important. But I'm talking about the first, like, well, uh, one, two, three, four, five, six words in English. House. <coughs> Not to be confused with the television show, but why is this an important word? Oh, no. Are you, have you guys, ha, has a semester war on you this terrible? <laughs> yeah. You know, go home and sleep. I, I feel the same way. You know, your brain's all mushy. David, God builds for David a what? House. David walks on the roof of his house. He looks over at somebody else's house. Right? He sends for Bathsheba from her house. He brings her to his house, and then she goes back to what? Her house. This is all interplay between what? Houses. <clears throat> David, you thought you were going to build your house. You're wrong. Nathan symbolically leaves and says, you don't have a what? You don't have a house anymore. I'm going to my house. Bye. And as soon as he does that, as soon as he does that, as if it's the final thing to tell him, the Davidic covenant is broken. Not broken in the sense that God won't keep it, we know he does, but broken in the sense that it's not working positively right now, right? After that symbolic gesture, what happens? The Lord strikes who? Child of who? Ah, careful of the referent title. Not Bathsheba. What's the emphasis? Uriah's widow. Actually, it, it says Uriah's wife in the text. Why? Because she is. That's what makes David what? Guilty. Just to underscore, David is guilty. This is what happens. Oh, you know, context and overview. I might, I might put an aside comment here before we continue. This is the issue of proof. David, Nathan has already said, you're going down. And what personally is the catalyst for that? Your child will die. Remember, it's always hinged upon who? The king. So whatever you show about the king, that's what's going to happen for the rest. Significance. Who's the favored wife, at least as we observe in this text? Bathsheba, right? David really likes the, the lady too much and wrongly. Okay, so who would the next king be? The son, right? And what's God saying? No. 
which could be interpreted if you didn't really know the Davidic covenant and you didn't know all this to mean what? Your dynasty is over. And David understands that. Right? David knows that. <clears throat> and so this, this episode with the son, and I don't want to appear callous here, it's a test scenario. It's a, it's a proof scenario. Does that make sense? It's, are you seriously going to destroy the Davidic dynasty? The child, the, the Davidic dynasty is carried upon one child after another child after another child. Does that make sense? The firstborn son, the son of the favored wife. Well, this becomes a perfect test scenario to see if God is serious. Are you with me? That's what David is trying to figure out here. Is God going to do what he said? Is he going to really carry it across for redemptive history what he has inaugurated or what he claims to have inaugurated through Nathan? So immediately God says, I'm out for blood. You are guilty. And he was very sick. Uh, very weak is the term idea of the word for sickness. So David goes to do what? He seeks the... He seeks God. It is fascinating here, and more work should be done, and more research should be done, to see if there are possible parallels between this event and what other event? Not in David's life, but in somebody else's life. And not in the New Testament. No, but that would be a good one. Uh, for different reasons that I have in mind. There's something here. Somebody... Hey, no. Although that would be good too for other reasons. There's somebody specific. Somebody who seeks the Lord, but God doesn't answer. And so, he seeks somebody else. Saul. Saul with what? Oh, those two guys got in the back. They're, they're congratulating each other. Good job. You should have said it. Uh, Saul and what? The, the spiritist, the medium, right? Saul, inquire, Saul asks of the Lord and the Lord doesn't respond. So he says, seek for me a medium. Same word, seek here. Very fascinating parallels. More should be drawn, I think, or at least, uh, at least explored, for the sake of seeing what's going on here and what doesn't go on here. And I'll make some comments on that later. But here's what David does. He fasts, he, he, he fasts a fast, so this is like a very incredible uh, deprivation. And he goes out and he lays on the, all night on the ground. Just the massive abasement here, contrasting with himself with what before? He never leaves his home. That's why he's sending, right? He doesn't really sleep with the on the ground for the night. He always sleeps in the comfort of his home in contrast to Uriah. Right? Uriah spends the night on the ground with the soldiers, even and the servants of his household. Everyone remember that? David never goes there. But now he is totally humble before the Lord. <clears throat> because the question well we don't know why, but he's desperate. He's very, very desperate. Every ounce of strength is trying to determine, are you going to seriously do this? Are you going to bring the Davidic kingdom down? And are you going to kill my child? That's, 
of both and there. Um, and what further confirms how low David had gone is that the elders of, of, the, of his household, the royal court, stood, stands beside him to try to lift him up, and he refuses. He won't eat with them. He won't do anything with them. <clears throat> and it happens on the what day? Seventh. Seventh. Significance? We could say it could be the Sabbath, but it could be just seven days after the child was born. So that might not necessarily be the Sabbath. Precisely. Before he gets circumcised. What is circumcised? See, my brain is kind of foggy too. Circumcision designate. What does circumcision designate? Yeah, you're part of the chosen people. This child is what? Rejected. And what could that be interpreted to mean? David, you and your son, and thereby your entire dynasty is what? Out. You're cut off from your own people. Very shocking. On top of that, seven days David has been weeping and fasting. This is an incredible duration of time. You would expect with one who had such intimacy with the Lord, this highlights the rejection because now God is no longer talking to David, even though so desperate, both in posture and in time. You would expect God to respond, and he does, just not the way it works. And now the servants are going to highlight you to you what you should expect to happen. So that when it doesn't happen, you have the surprise and you know the reason that it doesn't happen is what? Important. Does that make sense to everybody? Just like in a mystery movie, somebody kind of makes a suggestion and that prejudices you to think, oh yeah, it's, we're going along, that, going along this track, but really it's somewhere else. It's subterfuge. Does that make sense to everybody? This is what's going on here. The servants say what? They're scared. And what, what do they think? David is going to go crazy. He's going to harm himself, right? And that's what we should expect too. If David is so desperate for God to, so quote-unquote, change his mind or <clears throat> reverse the course for his son, then um, may, may, he should. He, he's going to go crazy when he finds out it didn't happen. But David does something strange. You see, he understands because of the whispering of the servants that the child's dead. And once again, the servants are on edge. And the point is amplified. David asks what? Is my son, is the child dead? And what do they say? He is dead. In Hebrew, it's very short. It's just one word. Hayalat mate? Mate. You would, what's weird about this? You would expect if you're a servant talking to the king, are you going to give a one-word answer? Unless it's yes, sir, or yes, it's not going to be that way, right? You're going to try to have something very uh, extended, kind of flowery, he's the king, 
You want to be polite. Does that make sense? This is kind of the royal discourse that you would expect between a servant and his, uh, a servant and his master. And here they just say one word. Why? Because they're scared. They're terrified. Uh, if we just maybe brush this under the carpet somehow, maybe David will not go berserk. But then it becomes very strange. David arose from the ground, washed, anointed himself. Arising from the ground, <coughs> reverses. He does what the elders always wanted him to do, which was to get up. From the ground, contrasts the fact that he was on the ground. Um, he, he washes himself, contrasts the fact that he spent nights and nights out on, the, out on the ground. And the fact that he anoints himself, this is not like anointing yourself to be Messiah kind of thing. That's not the anointing we're talking about here. This is a cosmetic anointing. Okay, kind of, um, remember our Lord when he says, when you fast, make sure no one knows that you're fasting. So like an, anoint yourself, wash yourself so that it doesn't look like you're in tremendous starvation, you know, kind of idea. So that you hide the effects of fasting. That's what David does. He reverses all the humiliation. And then what does he do? He goes to the keyword house. Yahweh, I know you could take away, you promised to build me a house, but you also took away my house. But I know whom I'm really supposed to be aligned to. It's what? Your house. This establishes what kind of relationship again? Capital K-I-N-G to lowercase K-I-N-G. And he what? What does he do there? Worships. Fascinating word for worship. Hishtakave. Remember the words for and then they bow down to David? Remember that? Similar word. Similar word. David, will you take the throne early? David, will you, when Mephibosheth bows to you, will you, um, will you strike out at him? Will you use your kingship the wrong way? Now, David, bow, worship Yahweh. Does that make sense? Submit to the real king. And David, this time, passes the test. And then he comes to his own house, keyword there, house, which means what? David still has a dynasty, even despite this. Somehow, and we will see the proof of it, and, and we're kind of, and well actually, I just kind of brushed that off too easily. You should be confused here. You're like, God ended the house. I thought this is such a destructive, the, the language is so extreme, and now God has killed the child, which means what? I'm not changing my mind. We're going forward. And so the servants are confused. How can you be relieved that your son is dead? And the reason is because God has made his decision, and I submit to it capital K-I-N-G, to the lower K-I-N-G. The servants ask, what? I don't understand this. And that's what you should ask. And he says, when the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. Who knows? The Lord may be gracious. He was already gracious to who? Me. He didn't kill me. Maybe he'll turn everything around for me 
But when the answer was what? No. David says, I still submit to the king. That's what makes different David different than Saul. Does that make sense, Harry? That's what makes David different than Saul. Saul always rebelled against the capital K-I-N-G. Here, David has massive rebellion, but in the end, he what? Submits. That's what makes him still yet the right man. That's what solidifies the faithfulness of God for his dynasty, even when he fails. Does this make sense to everybody? This is in the background, but it's starting to emerge in the foreground. And David has confidence that he will see his son again. Uh, But now he has died. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? The answer is no. I have no ability to do that. There is only one who has ability, and he's the what? He's the capital K-I-N-G. He's the only one who has life, power over life, over death. I will go to my son. He will not come back to me. Most pe- some people would argue that this is a reference just to death. That David will die, but his son will die. I mean, his son is dead. And his son can't come back to life. I think there are several lines of reasoning that go against this. <coughs> uh, first, the, the Hebrew mindset you don't just think of death in the Western terms as a physical, purely physical phenomena. And um, David particularly doesn't. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol. You heard that in chapel on Monday. He's not just saying, I'm not, you're just not going to let me die. His soul has physical presence. It could be in Sheol. That means there's an afterlife. And that God will not abandon David to a bad state or a state of separation from God in the afterlife. Does that make sense to everybody? Instead, he will uh, give him the pleasures of the afterlife forevermore in God's presence, in God's positive, affirming, encouraging, blessing presence. It's very difficult to just say, well, they just die and they're dead. That's not how the ancient Near Eastern mindset, particularly the Israelite mindset, particularly David's mindset works. Even more in 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, you already have a similar idea to this in 1 Samuel 28 with Saul and the the witch, the medium, remember? And I said, isn't this interesting? David seeks and, and God doesn't answer, so he gets Samuel to come up, remember? And Samuel says, tomorrow you and your sons will be be with me. And we commonly interpret that mean that to mean that they just what? Die. That's true. But here's the weird thing. Could Samuel, does Samuel just mean death? No. Can't be. Because Samuel is what? talking, <laughs> right? It can't just mean, well, you're going to physically die if he says you're physically with me. What, is phys- what does it mean to be with me? We're going to be spirits together. Does that make sense? In the afterlife. Does that make sense? That's the status that he has at that current moment. So when David says the same thing, and here's kind of the blessing the mixed blessing here, if you, if you do have contrast, David and Saul are similar. Dave, they, God doesn't answer both of them because they're under his judgment. Saul sins more. 
David doesn't. Right? Saul acts in a lower state of rebellion by refusing to do what God wants him to do and accepting it and instead goes to a medium to figure out God's revelation. Yes? David understands God's providence and accepts that and worships and bows to God instead. Does that make sense? Saul is going to die and that's painted in a negative light. Right? You're going to die. You're going to be with Samuel. But David, who says, I'll go to my son, that's a note of what? Comfort. Do you start to see where the two lines split? Yeah, it looks like the same situation at first. God's not talking to either of them, but their reactions and the results are different. Does that make sense to everybody? (coughs) And this is what begins to reinforce that God has great faithfulness in spite of David's failings to the dynasty. Any questions for me about that? Yes? Um, well, actually, it might be a different question. That's okay. Um, do you want to go? You go. Yours is a what question? A different question. Oh. Not, it's not about that. All right. Well, then I'll go first. Um, the, the question, well, first of all, yesterday I was testing you over there. I was trying to see if you, how you would answer uh, the death of the sons. And in, oh, okay, uh-huh. Well, whenever I asked that, that yeah. I couldn't really see that. Is, is, I, was, I was hoping that you would say, well, if God killed them, and that, that would send them to heaven anyways, they're in a better spot than they were growing up under David. Uh, so you didn't say that. Um, you left it kind of open. The, uh, the text here, I, I know many people have said that... Um, this is a good reference for babies going to heaven. And then I've heard other really sound people say, now this is a bad argument, but they never explain why it's a bad argument. They said it's a really long process. And so I've heard both. Uh, I mean, obviously, you know, Jesus says, hear not the little kids and let them come to me. And whenever he uses that word blessing, it's the only time in the New Testament he uses the word multiple blessings. So that's a beautiful insight to share with a mother that's lost her child. But could you share this one? Because some say that that's that's just not what it's talking about. And some say, hey, this is exactly what it's talking about because David is inspired. Uh, He is, you know, God-breathed. And this this scripture is God-breathed. So what is God saying here in the text? Yeah. Is that similar to your question, Chad, or no? Or do you have a different one? Oh, a different one? Oh, okay. I thought this question was going to come up. And I'm glad it did. And let me answer it. Let me answer your question and then show how it ties back into this specific text too, right? Because we can't just say, hey, look, this is a great proof text, but forget what it's originally doing, okay? Um, One, I think the theologians that say this verse is just talking about physical death, he's going to die. And there's no hope that David's child's in in heaven, so to speak, in the afterlife, is quite fallacious for the reasons that I just said. One, because David doesn't think of those categories. Two, because 1 Samuel, by precedent, has already argued that being in the afterlife means, being dead means being in the afterlife. And so when David says he's going to his son, it's not just going to death, it's going to be with him in the afterlife. And unless you want to put David in hell, then his son's got to be where? In heaven. Does that make sense? Um, So I do think it is legitimately talking about David's positive hope in 
seeing his son after he dies. Okay? That ties, like I said, with God's faithfulness. David knows God has been gracious with him. His grace will not remove the effects of sin that are leveled against not only David's son, but thereby the rest of the dynasty. David understands that. But he knows God will be gracious to him. And not only that, he will be gracious to his son. Okay? So that's, very, that's an important theological concept that I think is there. Does this make sense to everybody? Here's where you've got to be careful. Um, very careful. This one text doesn't provide universal scope. Does that make sense? This one text does not provide universal scope for all children. It doesn't even provide universal scope for all very, very, very young children. Does that make sense to everybody? That's where it's very tricky. Um, all it demonstrates is that God can intervene. He can do things in the womb, just like John the Baptist, Jacob and Esau, all these different things. He can intervene in the womb. He can intervene in babies' lives such that he can illumine their mind and give them the knowledge of the gospel and do all these kinds of different things. It is possible because, you know, how did JB know to jump for joy when he heard the, the Lord's voice? Well, there's got to be some dissemination of information into the, into the infant's mind, right? So it's not impossible for God. But the question is, is it guaranteed? That's a jump from this text. Does that make sense? That's a big jump. Um, just because it happens with David doesn't mean it can happen with everybody. It could be. I'm willing to accept that. But that's not what this text is saying. It's not a promise to every single mother. It's only promised to who? David. Um, and so, I think for those who have gone through tremendous loss of a child, um, you direct them to the God that David understands better now. He is very gracious. He's very, very gracious. Even when there's sin or wrongdoing, even if it's on our part, because God is faithful to his covenant promises, he will do what's right and best for us in the end. I don't know always the outcome of that. I think these texts do steer us in one direction, but I'm not willing to provide or be dogmatic about it because you're taking the text one step further than I'm comfortable with. Does that make sense? Um, can God do it? Yes. Is there precedent for him to do it? Yes. But is that a universal guarantee for all? Well, that's what's missing. That's what's missing. And so I don't know. I don't know. But I do know that the precedent and the possibility tell us that whatever God does, it's because he knows exactly what to do and it's the right thing to do. And he's incredibly gracious throughout the entire situation. So we just have to trust him as hard as that may be. Trust him that he does what's right. Um, and trust that his graciousness and his kindness and his intervention and his chesed are more than sufficient for the pain. And that God takes care of things correctly. Does that make sense? He does. Yeah. It's, it's not an easy pill to swallow, but that's kind of where I've landed. Even though, right, I mean... 
most people who take my position on this text would go all the way. But I'm just like, but the text doesn't necessarily take it all the way. It just assures David that God will be gracious to him for the sake of the Davidic covenant. Does that make sense to everybody? Um, I, it's a very hard thing to, to deal with. And, and you know, that good theologians differ on both sides. I think partly because it's not totally clear. Just not clear enough. You know, it's not like, uh, did God create the world? Well, yes. You know, Genesis 1. You know, uh, or is Jesus Christ? Yes, Jesus Christ. Right? So we're good. It, it's not like that. Uh, this is much more difficult. And pastorally, you just really have to I'm assure a family's heart about the goodness of God without giving them false hope. Make sure that their hope is always in Christ. Because um, he's the only one who can save the day. Don't let them worship their deceased child. Make them cling to Christ hard. And, and in the end, I think when we see all things done and all the results, you will know God was right. And we will worship him. But you've got to cling to that day. You gotta cling for that time. You gotta hope in that time. Okay. Yeah. Chat. Okay. In verse 22, uh, it says, "Who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me, and the child may live." Um, um, I don't know if this may not connect as it does and stuff, but in minor prophets, it uses like that kind of phrase. Right. Repent, for the Lord may be gracious to you. Yeah, like in Joel. Yeah, Joel and Amos. And Jonah. Yeah. Um, and I'm just like, curious how like the, the graciousness of God seems to be unsure, I guess, in in a statement like this. And I'm kind of wondering how we deal with that, that it's like the Lord might be gracious. Um, or is God's graciousness just shown in different ways? Does that make sense? Yeah. Hold on one second. <coughs> um I want to make sure that the wording is exactly the same before I make my comment. Uh, Jonah. Okay. Um, yeah, the wording's very similar. And what I would say is this, and they all go back to Exodus 34, God's graciousness. Um, The idea is God can do more than what is legally required of him. That was the idea in actually Exodus 34. God did more than what was legal. He could... He didn't kill Israel. Well, that's really nice. You know, he doesn't have to be their God anymore. They broke the covenant. It could have been over. But because of covenant promises he made before, he still remains their God. And that sets this precedent that God can do abundantly more than what we anticipate because he's gracious. Who knows? We do deserve to die. We, David does deserve for his child to die and thereby for all the consequences of what that entails to come forth. 
It's true. But maybe God can do more. Same thing in Joel and in Jonah. Maybe God could do more, right? If you repent, yeah, we do deserve disaster, but maybe he'll preserve us. And, and so the reason that there is a maybe here, or a who knows kind of statement, rhetorical statement, is because they, they know God is gracious, but they also know he's just. So where does the limitation fall? Right? Will God do more? And both for Joel and for Jonah, the answer is what? He does do more. Right? The Ninevites thought, we, we deserve to die, so we're going to die. But who knows? Maybe we won't die. And they don't die. Well, until later. And then, right, that's Nahum. Remember that, minor prophets people? And for Joel, eschatologically, who knows? Yes, God does spare them and restores everything back, restores everything back to them, as we talked about in minor prophets. So, but for David, it's a what? It's a no. I won't. I already showed you grace, David. This is the limit line. I have to start this. But by the way, if you are thinking big picture, right, and you understand how this thing plays into the big picture, why is this who know have to be a no? Because without this, without this downward spiral, what's, what can't happen? The exile. And without the exile, what can't happen? Jesus. And without Jesus, what can't happen? The reversal of everything. You have to have this. David must fall. You, you can't have it any other way. Does that make sense to everybody? But what also has to be established as part of proof is, next page, it's not just that God's going to crush the Davidic dynasty and because he's serious about punishment like he has now exhibited on David's child and doesn't move an iota from that. Um, but he has the ability to comfort and prove that he still will be faithful. We already got a taste of that before because David understands God's graciousness. But that graciousness, even though it has limits, will still be faithful. And that's what we see in verse 24 and 25. All right, 24 and 25. David comforts his wife, and they have another what? Son. Whose name is? Solomon. Solomon means? Shlomo. Shalom. Peace. And that is very important because Solomon now gives peace and comfort to David. This is a sign. Remember, Bathsheba is what? The favored wife. So her son should be the what? Next king. But what happened before? The, the child who's not named. By the way, he might not be named because you name your children at the point of circumcision. And he was never circumcised, so he's always the unnamed. He's just the kid. Uh, but Solomon obviously does make it past circumcision, and he lives oh, quite a while after that. Uh, but he's peace. You thought God rejected you. You thought he cut you off from the line because your son wasn't circumcised, but instead now what happens? He gives you a replacement. And therefore, you know what? <coughs> the kingdom will continue. There's a tension. Do you see this tension? On one hand, God's killing the Davidic line. On the other hand, he's what? Sustaining it. 
How are you going to hold these two things in tension? That's what the rest of Israel's history will struggle with all the way into the exile until they both meet in Jesus Christ. Okay? He's the resolution of this tension. But what the Lord... Now it says what? The Lord loved him. Important. Because you would expect God's about crushing the Davidic dynasty, so God should what? Strike this kid dead too. Right? But he doesn't. He loves Solomon. And he what? Verse 25? Sent. The, origin, the first sending that God gave was what? Very, very bad. This scent is what? Good. Because he renames the son who? As what? Yeah, Jedediah, which means the love of the Lord. But what do you hear in Jedediah? Okay, no, no, no not dead. Uh, you can't... David, D.D. This guy is the next David. David means beloved. Jedediah means beloved of the Lord. Uh-huh. Why do the scriptures then refer to him as Solomon? Because his name is still Solomon. But this tells you about God's election. This... Shlomo. But... But... Jedediah is significant here because it sheds tremendous theological insight about God's love for David still. David, will your line continue? Yes, there will be another David. There will be another David. That's the sign that God gives. There will be another David. Even if God is punishing you so harshly, God still loves you, David. He loves your dynasty. Therefore, he changes him to another David for the Lord's sake. The Lord's sake refers back to the fact that God must keep his Davidic covenant promises. Someone read 2 Samuel 7.15. Even though God will judge David with the blows of men, what does he say? My steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. Stop right there. Good. What is the idea? Even though I'm going to beat you down and chastise you, what also is going to happen? My loving kindness will not leave. I will still love you. What does Jedediah say? I still love you. Unlike who? Saul. And where did the split officially, really, really visibly occur? Post-medium. Because after the medium, Saul what? Dies. But David's dynasty what? Continues. And now we have this tremendous tension. I just can't emphasize that enough. God has to bring down the Davidic kingdom, but at the same time, he has to sustain it because he loves them and he judges them. It's hard. And what we see here is the beginning of that in verses 26 all the way through 31. Just walk very quickly with, through it with me. Oh, did you have a question? Yeah, I'm just curious why he, why he continues David's line at this point. Because of the Davidic covenant promise. My loving kindness will not leave you. So it can't. God promised it wouldn't happen. <coughs> Similar to Israel. Why didn't he just abandon and start with Moses? Well, he already made promises about the 12 tribes of Israel. He can't do that. And so because of his promises, he doesn't, he, it puts us in an ultimate tension. 
What's the difference between um, this point right now and in the exile? Um, even in the exile, even when it's over, right, for the Davidic dynasty by human perception, it's not because you have one seed, right? Well, There's a. And can we say that at this, this point in time? Like, oh, yeah. That's why I'm saying you have two things happening simultaneously. You have the kingdom collapsing and the dynasty collapsing, but yet God is still faithful because he keeps preserving over and over and over again. And, and ultimately, this has got to change course. God's faithfulness has to win out somehow, and it does in Christ. And that's why, like we see in Minor Prophets all the time, that the Davidic dynasty will resurrect and there will be tremendous hegemony of Israel over all the nations and all these kinds of things because when the reversal does happen and Yahweh does shepherd his people, well, then the faithfulness will fulfill the rest of the promises. See how it all connects? There's another question. Uh huh. Um, they, he said he comforted his wife. David comforted his wife. They could change it to his wife now? Yes. Because before he conceived, well, like, she was still Uriah's wife. Right. Yes, and that is the difference. And it shows... God can reverse things. I mean, the whole verse 24 and 25, if we have more time, is filled with all these reversals. Like, he comforts his wife. They give birth to a son, unlike the other son. It's just a total changeover. Once David passes the test of king versus king, God says, and the dynasty will still continue with you. I still can show you grace. It won't be the same kind of grace that you were originally hoping for, that I'd spare your son. But it's a grace that will keep you through. And so there is a reversal that takes place. Yeah. But here's where the rub comes in, and I've got to go through this really fast. Ready? Joab fought. Problem? Everyone understand the problem? David should have fought. Bad, bad news. Already, if you remember, we have the, the progression of right person, then what? Military, and then what? Political unification. Everyone remember this? Get it in your head. What's breaking off now? The military. Notice what Joab says. I've fought against Rabbah. I've captured the city of waters. By the way, that's a fortification protecting the water supply. Therefore, gather. What's weird about that? Joab is giving orders to the king. Um... Okay, can you imagine a general going up, oh, well, this situation actually kind of happened, kind of bashing President Obama. Remember that? And, and what happened? The guy's out, right? Even if that was a bad move, you understand why the president had to do it. Because no one, you're the, you respect the rank system, right? And here's the general, and he's telling David what to do, and what does David do? Probably destroy him. Uh, but what does David do? He follows Joab's orders. David is now starting to what? Stop acting like a king. I'm a servant. Already you start to see David is not the right person. It's going downhill. Yes, God is sustaining David. Why? Because he gave him victory over the enemies. Is that not true? And you see that. Look, he captures the king and he takes a 75 pound crown from the head of the king and puts it on David. So yes, there is this tension. Oh, look, God is faithful. God will give David rest from his enemies. All these things are true. But what's the problem? Eroding from under his grasp is the very military that supports him. Do you see that? 
Okay. And that's what happens. And David returns to Jerusalem. And the erosion that David started and that God has determined is going to continue, even if God will be faithful. Good. Have a good... Is today Thursday? Have a good weekend.